Tracks on the Trail. Hello, I'm Dr. Dana Gorzalani Mostak from Georgia College. And I'm Dr. Naomi Graber from the University of Georgia. Welcome to the all new Tracks on the Trail podcast, now with added social distancing. Tracks on the Trail is a website where scholars, educators, journalists, students, and the general public can learn about American presidential campaign music and gain insight into how sound participates in forming candidate identity. In this podcast series, we'll be interviewing experts on music and politics, both scholars and industry professionals, to provide up-to-the-minute analysis of the use of music in the 2020 campaign, as well as historical perspectives. Today, we're talking with Eric Casper and Benjamin Shaning. Eric Casper is a lawyer and associate professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Benjamin Shading is chair of the music department and director of vocal studies at the University of North Georgia. Doctors Casper and Shading have published two books on music and American presidential campaigns. The first, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, is a history of music and campaigning. And the second, You Shook Me All Campaign Long, is a collection of essays addressing the 2016 election from various disciplinary perspectives. Welcome to both of you. It's great to have you with us here today. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Eric, could you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in music and political campaigns? Sure. It really began when Benjamin and I co-taught a course on American politics and music in 2008. We were teaching together at the same campus at the time. The campus was in need of an interdisciplinary studies course for students to be able to meet general education requirements. And so Benjamin and I put that course together. I looked at a lot of different in terms of the politics of music, uh, things like the, uh, the emotional appeal and power of music, different attempts throughout history to censor music, music of the civil rights movement and other protest movements. And as part of that course, uh, we talked about music and taught our students about music uh, as it's been used in campaigns for office. So Benjamin, same question. Why did you decide to write on this subject? a similar answer to Eric. In 2008, when we were looking at interdisciplinary courses, this seemed to make a a lot of sense, combining music and politics, since they've always had so much interplay. And Eric was kind enough to invite me into his introductory American politics class. And over the course of the years, the topic that seemed to continually expand was the music and presidential campaigns, just because there's so much interesting information about it and so many interesting things that have happened over the course of you know 200 years of history in this country and it intrigued us enough to the point where writing a book was something we just decided we had to do. So the majority of research carried on a campaign music comes to us from musicologists and ethnomusicologists. I mean Eric you're a lawyer how does this inform your perspective on this subject? Well, I mean, my biggest focus in terms of the law is, is on the U.S. Constitution, and uh, the, the U.S. Constitution has been relevant to a number of the areas of research that Benjamin and I have done, looking at how the, the right to vote has been expanded constitutionally, and throughout history, every time the right to vote has been expanded, 
where property qualifications have been removed or the right to vote has been expanded with regard to race or gender or age. Each one of those points in history, we then see a corresponding change in how music is used in presidential campaigns, trying to appeal to a larger constituency or to, to new members of the voting class of citizens. There's also the aspect of a series of constitutional interpretation that candidates have tried to express through music and through song. Even beyond the constitutional questions, there are a number of interesting legal issues involved with the use of campaign music. For instance, uh, if candidates use that uh, music without permission of the copyright holder, and so those sorts of questions that come up are certainly areas that have piqued my interest and that constitute a significant amount of the, the work that we've done together in terms of our research. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think you're right that especially in campaigns as of recent, you know, with a lot of the issues that have come up with regards to copyright, that it's the perfect time for you know attorneys to weigh in on the legal implications of this particular practice. And even speaking more broadly, copyright is a whole new frontier for us musicologists with things like the Blurred Lines case and other similar things that are going on in popular culture. So it's it's really nice to have perspectives from the legal and political science world. So thank you for dropping in on us. I'm happy to be a part of the party. Um, Benjamin, you're a singer and a music administrator. So how does that inform your research? I mean, a lot of what I do as a singer is text-focused. I'm really analyzing text and how the text interplays with the music and how all that ultimately affects the audience as a performer so I, I can better communicate. And so a lot of what I like to focus on in, in research when I've been working with Eric is is really doing textual analysis and what is a campaign trying to say or what messages may be conveyed that they're not really trying to say, but they're, are there in the background if, if someone is really listening. So that's where a lot of my focus ends up. Wonderful. So I want to dive into your newest book, You Shook Me All Campaign Long. Um, your introduction is fascinating. It has this wonderful overview of the history of campaign music. Benjamin, can you tell us about a few landmark moments? Well, I mean, I think the biggest landmark moment is in 1840 with the song Tip Canoe and Tyler Two. I mean, that is the the song that brings music to the forefront and is said to have sung someone into the White House, finally. And going forward from that, you see music with Lincoln in, in 1860 and possibly one of the, the first celebrity endorsements by the Hutchinson family singers, the use by FDR, uh, Happy Days Are Here Again, which, you know, actually he was not supposed to use. I think the idea was originally to use Anchors Away to, to play on his military experience. And given the Great Depression at the time, he wanted a, a happier song to promote a bright future. And it was really the first instance where a canned song had been used in a campaign. And that is the, the model that kind of took off really in the late 1970s and into the 1980s. You know, in 84 with Reagan using God Bless the USA, I mean, it's it's been all canned music ever since. 
that's really fascinating, particularly when you think about the ways that election music is is sort of constantly changing. And one of the things that I really love about your book uh, is that it does go back that far. You're listening to the Tracks on the Trail podcast on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, hosts Dana Gorzolani-Mostak and Naomi Graber are talking with Ben Shanning and Eric Casper about their books, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, and You Shook Me All Campaign Long. There's more to come, so stay tuned to the Tracks on the Trail podcast. Tyler too. For those listeners who don't know about that, can you explain what that song was and why it was so important? You know, this was one of those uh, changes in, in property rights and, and voting rights that happened sometime in the, the 1830s. And so the, the population that was voting had expanded in, in 1840. And so I think because of that, music was propelled to the forefront. You have a voting populace that is perhaps more varied educationally and you're looking for a way to disseminate message and so music becomes one of those vehicles by which we can really get the message of a particular candidate out to this ever-expanding voting populace. This is one of those instances also where we start to see negative campaigning starting to, to come into it where the song is actually taking negative aspects that uh, Harrison's opponent had been throwing at him and uses them as reasons that the populace should vote for this person because he is, you know, not only a war hero, but he's just like you. You know, raise your glass. It doesn't matter that he's a drunkard. I mean, this is the kind of person you are. This is the kind of person that you would like to be representing you in the White House. And I, I think it was kind of the perfect storm with that increase in numbers of voting populace and that need for the vehicle to promote a particular candidate where music just came to the forefront as that ideal vehicle at that time. Kind of the 1840s version of this is the candidate that you'd prefer to have a beer with. In, in addition to expanding the right to vote, the other thing that happens leading up to 1840 is you have some significant developments in the advancement of the printing press that makes it much easier and cheaper to mass produce printed materials, including songbooks. And so, I mean, it, it just proliferates the number of songs that could be written about a campaign and then that could be spread through these songbooks throughout the country. So it's a whole confluence of thing. It's both populism and the rise of technology that is shaping the way that the election and that candidates are marketed, essentially. Well, and I think also home life as well. You know, when we talk about the use of songbooks in the mid-1800s, when you went home at night, your form of entertainment was sitting around a piano and, and one of your kids knew how to play or you knew how to play and everyone would sing songs. And so publishing these large volumes of campaign music where the family was sitting around the piano singing about a particular candidate, learning to some degree about the views of a particular candidate and essentially getting that candidate's name in their head as an earworm, I think was, was really important to those campaigns as well. 
Well, earworms have been important to campaigns for generations. I think in the in the book you bring up I Like Ike and, of course, the, the Kennedy jingle, which when I listened to I had in my head for days. Kennedy, Kennedy, it's... Kennedy, Kennedy. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, what's interesting to me about all of this is that we have these two things that are sort of coming together. We have sort of social movement towards populism and we also have the industrial revolution which is making these printing innovations possible but also the manufacture of pianos which are becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so more and more people of different classes can buy pianos just and that leads to as you said sort of singing around the piano and so i'm wondering if you've seen any recent technological advancements or shifts in culture that have come to bear in a similar way as some of these things that we've been talking about um, with Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you certainly have uh, with the, the rise of radio and then television and then the internet, uh, these, these different media where music can play a new role. And so I, I don't think it's a mistake that in 1932, the, the first usage uh, by a presidential candidate of, of a pop song, line for line, lyric for lyric. There's a Happy Days Are Here Again by the Roosevelt campaign because it's an era when um, the, the, the rise of radio is now creating this national culture uh, in terms of music and in, in terms of national identity. Um, you know, we get the innovation of I Like Ike as an ad on television in the early 1950s, uh, representing that now you can pair a jingle like that with the moving picture. And then here in the 21st century with the internet, we see campaigns trying to use it in all sorts of innovative ways. Uh, and then also seeing ca campaigns lose a bit of control uh, because of the democratization of the internet as a medium in ways that we've never have really seen with television or with radio previously in terms of, uh, for instance, YouTube and the ability for individual persons to upload songs about candidates that then go viral. Um, and so e each one of these technological innovations has definitely ushered in uh, new and, and different ways of using music with respect to presidential campaigns. So true. Along those same lines, it seems, especially in the last 20 years or so, as the number of songs are expanding within campaigns, because I think of the advent of YouTube and the internet technologies, it almost allows for the individual who's supporting a candidate to, you know, choose their own campaign in a way that, you know, they can select, you know, the five songs that really in their mind reflect that candidate or reflect their musical point of view or reflect their background because you see that these lists are getting so eclectic in nature as candidates are trying to broadly appeal to wider segments of the voting populace. One really interesting example of that that makes me think of is back during the 2000 campaign, the George W. Bush campaign. I mean, they, they had a, a, a CD that they burned of different songs that they they would use on the campaign trail. And you think, you know, technologically, what it took to be able to select music and then to bring it along with you on the campaign 20 years ago, as opposed to now, how much easier it is to queue up music electronically. 
And so that definitely affected the, the amount of music and, and the variation in the amount of music that can be used at one of these rallies. And it's certainly, especially since the advent of the iPod, I mean, you know, culture developing around like the concept of playlists as being a creation of a music playlist, sort of like, you know, a mixtape earlier on when, well, when I was a kid. It's, you know, sort of a mode of, of communication, if you will. It's sort of a, a type of exchange where you're sharing something about yourself and, and who you are with another person. So it also allows the candidates to forge intimacy to a certain extent with the electorate. I mean, if you think about, you know, Barack Obama's use of Spotify is just sort of w- one example, right? You know, he's sharing his music with the people sort of positioning himself as somebody who's in touch with the public, you know, it's sort of a way of telescoping, you know, we share the same values, we, um, you know, we share the same ideals in a certain way. So, um, well, no, I think well, that you're I, actually I, making a, a really interesting point, which is that mixtapes are sort of the precursor to playlists and, and mixtapes are quite intimate. You know, you would make a mixtape for someone that you liked. I'm thinking especially of the movie High Fidelity, where the, the <laughs> sort of problem is that he keeps making mixtapes for too many women. Um, and <laughs> Spotify is a way of channeling that intimacy to a lot of different people by just being able to share your playlist. And I think that that's something that that Obama in particular harnessed. Absolutely. In a way, it makes a campaign more dangerous and less dangerous at the same time. You know, you figure back in, you, you know, probably before 20 or 25 years ago when candidates were really using this broad spectrum of of songs back then they were using a particular song and if you struck the wrong note you could almost disenfranchise the voting populace and if you struck the right note it you know could potentially sing you into the white house and i i think of you know 1992 with Bill Clinton and uh, Don't Stop, Thinking About Tomorrow. I mean, it was a brilliant musical note that resonated with a broad spectrum of the populace. But now when you have this ability to associate your campaign with this broad spectrum of music, you can appeal to individual tastes of so many different people on the campaign, and it's not necessarily a specific hit and miss. I think a campaign still has to be cognizant of the music that they're putting out and affiliating with themselves, but they can try to tailor that so specifically to different segments of that voting populace and creating intimacy with all of them by how eclectic that musical view is. But I think I think you're absolutely right with what you say about being dangerous as well. I mean, you know, one really great example might be Hillary Clinton's playlist in 2016 and that she stacked it with music of artists like Ariana Grande and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people felt that her playlist didn't really accurately reflect her or who she was. It certainly targeted the demographic of young women she was wishing to court away from Bernie Sanders, but it didn't really authentically reflect her. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of striking that balance, right, that you want to find a way to forge intimacy with the populace and create a connection and give them what they're interested in, what they want. But that playlist also needs to divulge something about the candidate and who they are. And if it doesn't really seem to accurately reflect their values, their their beliefs, their background, then I think the candidate gets criticized for it. And that certainly was the case with Hillary Clinton in 2016. 
I agree. I think it's that balance between opening yourself up and letting them in while still disseminating the message that you want to give versus becoming someone who it looks ostensibly like you're just trying to court the vote and you're closing yourself off in a way which people don't want to see nowadays. Absolutely. And don't forget, at least in the case of Hillary Clinton, you know, since she came into the public scene, this sort of perception of her as being inauthentic in some way, you know, so already kind of those discourses about her lack of authenticity were circulating. And, you know, once she chose a playlist that didn't seem to authentically reflect her, those same discourses became mapped onto her music choices. You're listening to the Tracks in the Trail podcast on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, hosts Dana Gorzolani-Mostak and Naomi Graber are talking with Ben Shanning and Eric Casper about their books, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, and You Shook Me All Campaign Long. There's more to come, so stay tuned to the Tracks in the Trail podcast. address Donald Trump's use of music in your chapter titled We the People Sing, Presidential Candidates' Use of Music to Express Different Methods of Constitutional Interpretation. And in your chapter, you argue that presidential candidates use music to express their views on the Constitution. And you describe Donald Trump's constitutional interpretation as being structuralist. I was wondering if you could discuss what you mean by structuralists and maybe talk a little bit about exactly how Trump espoused this interpretation through his music in 2016. Structuralism is a form of constitutional interpretation that emphasizes the dominant themes of the Constitution overall as a way to help interpret a particular clause of the document. So, for instance, uh, there you know, are kind of big picture themes running throughout the Constitution, like federalism, separation of powers, freedom, equality. So structuralism says that when we, we have difficulty interpreting a particular clause, we should kind of look to the, these, these big picture ideas. It's a little more flexible than, say, strict construction, which is really tied to the direct text or originalism, which it really likes to dig into the specifics of the historical development of, of a particular part of the Constitution. And so structuralism is, like I said, it's kind of a big picture approach to constitutional interpretation, particularly if it's used by uh, someone who isn't an attorney who doesn't really parse constitutional text uh, the way a lawyer tends to, to do that with text generally, or someone who hasn't really undertaken a, a long historical study of why a clause is in the Constitution. And so what I argue in the chapter is that uh, comparing President Trump, for instance, to some of the, the other candidates out there, like Ted Cruz, who is more of an originalist, or uh, Bernie Sanders taking more of a living constitutionalist approach, 
Donald Trump in 2016 was being more structuralist. Um, and a couple of examples of that would be, for instance, his use of Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World, uh, trying to make this kind of broad uh, appeal to the notion of freedom. Uh, and when he used that song in particular, he was doing it at rallies where he also was talking about uh, concepts of freedom and free markets. Even more specifically, there was one point in the 2016 campaign where uh, Trump was playing Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. And he was playing that at uh, some rallies where there were questions raised about whether or not Ted Cruz was actually eligible to serve as president, given that he wasn't born in the United States. Uh, he was actually born in Canada, but his mother was an American citizen. So under, under most legal scholars' views, that would qualify Ted Cruz uh, to be eligible to, to, to be president. But uh, Trump was playing that song at these rallies where he then was making this argument from a, a more structuralist perspective that he didn't think Ted Cruz was even eligible to be president. And so in, in these types of cases, you see the, the interpretation of the relevant part of the Constitution being based on popular perceptions about some of these big ideas, whether it's freedom or separation of powers. And so that's something that Donald Trump was doing at these rallies, using this song and then giving a speech that would lend itself to that type of constitutional interpretation. It's really fascinating, and I, it's one of the things I really appreciate about your work is that a lot of times when people study the rhetoric of candidates, you know, they look specifically at something like speech or something like images, but they don't really think about the role sound plays in persuasion. And, you know, clearly, as you've argued, music became one of the strategies that Trump used to put forward his viewpoint on the Constitution, which is really quite fascinating. So is there a candidate on the Democratic side in 2020 that you feel has espoused a specific interpretation of the Constitution through their music? Especially with where we've been in the last few months with no campaigning. Um, uh, offhand, I, I can't think of, I, and maybe one way of putting this, why I can't think of an example is, the, the emphasis on the Constitution in 2016 was particularly front and center um, because uh, in, in February of that year, uh, we, we had the death of uh, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, and so you had this open seat on the Supreme Court. And so questions about the Constitution really came to the fore and I think worked themselves into music in 2016 in more so than they would in a, in a typical election season. So I think that's part of the reason why, I'm, as, as I'm thinking about it now, I'm, I'm kind of hard-pressed to think of that type of pairing that I've seen thus far in 2020, uh, connecting the, the music to a question of constitutional interpretation, uh, which isn't to say that that doesn't exist or it hasn't happened, but I, I just can't think of one off the top of my head. One of the things that struck me as I was reading your chapter is that you say that Donald Trump is a structuralist and then put in parentheses, sort of. Can you explain what you meant by that sort of? Yeah, well, part of this is a little bit of extrapolation from what, what I would normally mean if I were talking about a lawyer writing a law review article or a, a judge handing down a decision. If they're taking a, a more structuralist perspective 
they, they wouldn't exactly be doing it in this way, um, that there would be uh, much more of an emphasis still on the text itself and, and the history. But then when there are questions about even looking at the text and the history, there's still questions about how to interpret that clause of the Constitution, then a structuralist will say, well, you know, the, one of the themes running through the Constitution is this notion of separation of powers. So that, you know, should really, if, if, if we're unsure about to interpret a clause one way or another way, we should use that to, to push us in one direction. Or if there's a question about the exercise of government power with respect to individual liberties, that's another one of these big structural concepts running through the document is the, the protection of certain basic fundamental freedoms. And so it's a little bit of an extrapolation because President Trump, unlike, for instance, Ted Cruz, President Trump doesn't have a legal background. He's not a lawyer. And so he's, he's not exactly using a method of constitutional interpretation the way that Ted Cruz was, was applying originalism to his approach to these types of questions, for instance. What does the soundtrack of an originalist look like? Well, I think for someone like Ted Cruz, for instance, you know, he was trying to find music that would emphasize certain themes that would be within the line of his brand of originalism. And so he was using, for instance, different types of songs that would look at religious aspects to his candidacy. And again, what I looked at was a pairing between the music that was used at a rally and then the speech that was given at that rally. So we would play music that would emphasize questions about religion when he's also then at that rally talking about religious liberty from an originalist perspective. Um, and so it's, I think it really comes down to, as far as the research I did, trying to connect music that was used at a rally to that speech and what, what types of themes were used in that speech. And then from that, you know, trying to examine, okay, why did that candidate pick that song for that rally and, and how they're, they're choosing music to try and emphasize these different modes of constitutional interpretation. Great. You're listening to the Tracks on the Trail podcast on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, hosts Dana Gorzolani-Mostak and Naomi Graber are talking with Ben Shanning and Eric Casper about their books, Don't Stop Thinking About the Music, and You Shook Me All Campaign Long. There's more to come, so stay tuned to the Tracks on the Trail podcast. change the ways in which 2020 candidates are using music as a part of their campaign strategies? You know, in terms of 2020, it's an interesting and, and strange year for many reasons. 
and campaign music is, is certainly not immune to that. Without rallies, we don't see the warm-up music that has become a staple of those events. Uh, we don't see the walk-off music uh, that would be at the conclusion of a candidate's speech. But at the same time, I, I think music is going to continue to play a role even under our, what we're doing with social distancing. Candidates are still seeking and musicians still providing endorsements to candidates for, for office. Um, there's uh, the ability to use music in television, radio, and internet advertising, although there hasn't been a whole lot of advertising over the last few months. At some point here before the general election, we would expect that that would, that would pick up again. I've seen a few run through Hulu. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, whatever ends up happening with the major party conventions, if they are held in some form, music is going to play a role there, I think quite similar to what it's done in other party conventions over the last century or so. And historically, like we talked about earlier, every time there's been a significant development affecting campaigns, whether it's the emergence of new technology or expanding the right to vote, et cetera, we've seen innovations in the use of campaign music. And so I think there, there may be an opportunity here to see campaigns try to do something different and try something that perhaps could have a lasting effect in the way that music is used in campaigns. Cool. So our last question, in the process of researching your most recent or your previous book, what is the most surprising thing that you found? Well, I think the book, uh, You Shook Me All Campaign Long, um, you know, w one of the interesting things about doing an edited volume like that is that unlike the first book where Benjamin and I were, were co-authoring the, the whole thing, each chapter we're working with a different author or a different set of authors, and so you, you get these different perspectives. So I think the most interesting part of writing that book, what we learned is the, the varying interpretations of campaign music by different authors, questions about what was the use of music by a candidate a success or a failure uh, that, that, that in terms of we had disagreements in, in different chapters about that. How important are the lyrics versus the, the song itself? And that really comes down to the fact that we had an eclectic mix of authors from different disciplines, from those who our faculty in, in music and political science, to so those with a law background, those who, who teach English, those who teach Spanish, uh, those in communication journalism. So I think seeing both the, the different perspectives that come from a different discipline that are brought to bear on these questions, as well as the different methodologies that are used to answer questions about what is true in the world that we see in, in different disciplines across social sciences and the humanities. Uh, really made this uh, an interesting book to, to edit and, and for us to work on because it really let us be able to, to see what people from these different backgrounds had to say about the use of music in campaigns. I think that my favorite part about the book really was the diversity of perspectives that you offered. And I really felt that many of the chapters really dialogued with each other and really sparked my interest in sort of asking a lot of different questions that I never really thought about before. And I think you, your book has also been incredibly useful in the classroom as well, not just to teach about the subject of campaign music, but also um, to teach about different ways of approaching this, this, you know, really quite complex topic, if you will. 
So it's really been great to have both of you here today. And we've really been fortunate that we've had the opportunity to work with you guys over the past few years. So once again, this is Eric Casper, lawyer and associate professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and Benjamin Shaning, chair of the music department and director of vocal studies at the University of, of North Georgia. The Tracks on the Trail podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia College Department of Music and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tracks on the Trail was created by Dana Gorzellini-Mostak and is co-edited by Naomi Graber and James DeVille. Haley Strasberger and Sarah Griffin provide research assistance. Today's program was edited by Daniel McDonald. You can visit us anytime at www.tracksonthetrail.com. That's T-R-A-X on the trail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter or Pinterest, and listen out for more on soundcloud.com backslash WRGC.